0: Welcome to the Bridge the Divide podcast with Erica Turner and Heidi Wheeler, hosts and founders of the group Bridge the Divide Cedarburg. We hope to provide a forum for discussion and action around racial reconciliation. We seek to identify instances of inequality, foster empathy, and educate others to recognize their part in problems and solutions in Ozaki County and beyond. today's episode of Bridge the Divide, we have a guest. It's someone I know very well. It's my very own spouse, Josh Wheeler. Ooh, That's right. Josh. Hello. Hey, Thank Josh.
1: You. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, Heidi is my my lovely bride and Erica's partner in Bridge the Divide. And um, I wanted to come on today and just share uh, some of the things that I've learned myself as I've kind of gone through a progression of understanding racism and um, its place in our society and its effect on on our society where we are today. You know, I grew up in Michigan and probably like a like a, like a lot of uh, white people in, in rural areas didn't racism was certainly not on my radar growing up. Um, I knew a few people of color, but not very many. There were a few in my school. Uh, but it's just not something I thought about. And then maybe five or six years ago when we were living in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is uh, a lot smaller than Milwaukee, but also a very segregated place, uh, but also a place that's that's doing some interesting things now to try to ameliorate that segregation and, and fix kind of the urban blight that's there. But um, for whatever reason, it, it kind of came onto my radar at that point. And Kalamazoo was hosting these community conversations where they'd, Uh, take, take the library or take a a public space and have a topic of racism and ask folks to just come out and kind of share their stories. And a lot of people of color would come out to those and share anecdotes and things that for, for people of color, they wouldn't be surprising at all. But for, uh, for me and for other white people who hadn't been exposed to that kind of thing, very shocking and eye opening. And I think from that point, I started to read a lot and try to understand our history and, um, and kind of how that's affected where we are today in terms of, 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 race and racism. And so I, I wanted to kind of share a few, just three, three bullet points today that really stuck out to me. And these, these are things that are not going to be revelatory insights for anybody who's done any studying on this issue. Certainly not going to be insightful uh, for Erica or for people of color who, who know about these things, but for me, they were, they were really kind of shocking and eye opening, And I, I, I hope I can, I can maybe do two things. One, for, some, for, for a white person who's become interested in racism and, and it's maybe a little bit on the radar, but they haven't done a lot of, of thinking or studying or reading about it, to kind of take these things and maybe start here and just consider the, the impact that they've had. And then for someone who's thought about racism um, but has just been overwhelmed by the, by the statistics or um, all the various anecdotes or who uh, just looks at everything and goes, you know what? I think it's um, I think it's a, a lot to do about nothing. I don't think we, we have a problem with racism today. I want to I want to see if they'll reconsider, you know, because uh, I, honestly, that's probably where I was many years ago. Is you know, you hear a lot about it, but it's like, yeah, I think we're past that now. We've come to a new place in our society. You know, Barack Obama got elected. How racist can we really be? Um, and hopefully some of these some of these points would would uh, stick out to a person like that and make them rethink. So anyway, um. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about, and these are all things that you can, you can Google online, you can find tons of data about, they're, they're publicly available. But the first thing is the, uh, the Three-Fifths Compromise. So the Three-Fifths Compromise was a compromise reached among the state delegates during the 1787 U.S. Constitutional Convention. And it was on whether, and, and if so, and how, slaves would be counted when determining a state's total population. And this was important because the population would be used to determine the number of seats that that state would have in the U.S. House of Representatives for the next 10 years. And so what they and then what they decided on was that slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person for the population count. Uh, and there were some southern states with a lot of slaves that wanted them counted. There were others that didn't because then they'd have to pay higher taxes, more people equals more taxes, and there were kind of back-and-forth negotiations um, but I don't think that really matters. I mean, just regardless, just think about that for a minute that we as a society um put in our constitution that African American people counted as three fifths of a person.
0: Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Erica's making a face over there. Yeah.
1: So I mean that that's that's pretty shocking if you don't know that. Um I wanted to read this quote from Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln, as we all know, emancipated the slaves. He, he's, he's a hero in our national history. He's viewed as someone who, at his time, had very progressive views, I think, on, on race relations. But listen to this quote. This was after the Civil War, after the emancipation. Uh, and this is from a book uh, called A History of the American People by Paul Johnson that I read recently. He told a delegation of blacks who came to see him at the White House and asked his opinion about emigration to Africa or elsewhere, that he welcomed the idea. And here's a quote from him. There is an unwillingness on the part of our people, harsh as it may be, for you free colored people to remain with us. He even founded an an experimental colony on the shores of San Domingo, but the dishonesty of the agents involved forced the authorities to ship the blacks back to Washington. So I think that's that's a pretty shocking and somewhat prophetic quote there from Abraham Lincoln, the man who emancipated the slaves to say, it's not going to work, guys. I mean, mm-hmm. we're we're let's 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 try moving you to a to a different country because there is just an unwillingness here for us to live together.
2: Right. I might be willing to say, all right, maybe you shouldn't be in bondage maybe. Maybe we shouldn't own you as property,
1: but we don't really want to interact and have a
2: relationship or anything. Yeah. So
1: He's saying I'm taking the temperature <laughs> of white people in this country, and guys, it's just not going to work. Right. So I don't know when I when I when I think about the three-fifths compromise, when I hear that quote from Abraham Lincoln, it 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 doesn't surprise me that this issue has persisted for generations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the first that's the first point. Um, the second point is the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. So the GI Bill was this governmental act. After World War II, that provided loans, uh, mortgages, and financial support for college for returning military uh, folks from the war that fought in the war. Um, and it was this massive governmental program that really uh, did a lot to spur economic development, GDP growth, um, housing growth. It really kickstarted the economy at a crucial point in our history. And if you look back at our financial history from that point on, there was this robust growth that was unprecedented in our history and in the history of the world, really. So it spurred this massive economic growth. However, because of the racism embedded in the country at the time, the benefits were largely kept away from black people, right? right. particularly in the South. And so you had the gov- government stepping in to provide a financial boost, take care of returning soldiers. Um, But it was kept away from black people, and one of the stats that stuck out to me was in 1940, enrollment at black colleges was 1.08% of the total U.S. college enrollment. Okay, that's really low. I mean, Mm -hmm. black people right now, I think, are about 13% Mm -hmm. of our population. I think at that time it was maybe a little lower, but it was still 11 12%. Because you're covering the
2: whole family, so even if you wanted to go to college, who... Somebody needs to work and provide for the family, and that's maybe dad, but also children Mm -hmm. underneath to help keep the family fed and housed. So it's really a luxury to go to college, no matter how smart you were or how much you wanted to do it.
1: Right.
0: Do you mind sharing how the GI Bill was kept away from people of color? Because I don't know if our history books say this, but I've heard, hey, the GI Bill was for all returning soldiers. Mm -hmm. So how is it kept away from the soldiers of color? Um, One of the things that I heard was
2: um, in order to go to college. So we have some historically black uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and Mm -hmm. universities. There were some, but there weren't as many. Right. So if you want to use the GI Bill, you have to go to a, a white school. And if. Whites don't want blacks anywhere mixed. They're not letting them into a white school. Right. So you can say, oh, you didn't meet the requirements. Uh, oh, sorry, we were full. We just had one spot yesterday and the last guy took it. Sorry, there's no spot for you. Um, or if you did get in, the harassment and the, the violence that's perpetrated against you, so why would you want to stay? You know. So those were the yeah. things that I heard about the GI Bill. And so what happened was those that still wanted to use it, then... The HBCUs said, well, we've got to to build to be able to accept the folks coming in that want to use it. So then they started having uh, their halls overflowing because so many people that didn't want to use it, but there was so little capacity of the the black colleges to have, you know, a million folks coming back Mm -hmm. from war, all coming to school all at the same time. So it was kind of overcrowded and they started to, I think they started to have more, that were opened to help handle this influx of new no black soldiers that wanted to use it. Yeah. But then, and then there's also the the fact that I have to feed my family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there isn't the when you think about now you're a single suburban kid that leaves high school, goes to college, travels the world, does five mission trips, okay, I'm ready to stop and settle down now. They're not paying their way all this time. They've got some, you know, support from family. And they can do that. I think mm-hmm. if you're thinking about the, you know, the 50s, you you have to put food on the table. You may already have a family or you may be supporting three generations of your family. There isn't time to go and right. learn and grow and be a better. Pr- you need to f- put food on the table.
1: Yeah.
0: So we need to go to break. OK, um, but we're going to come back and talk about that more after the break.
1: So we're talking about the GI Bill, uh, this this government program that provided financial support for returning soldiers from World War II, and how the benefits uh, were largely, um, they largely went to white white folks and kept away from black people. Uh, we mentioned the stat that in 1940, enrollment at black colleges was 1.08%, which is obviously very low. By 1950, it had increased to 36 which is which is an improvement, of course, but still very low. Um, you know, black people make up, I think, at that time, thirteen percent of the population, almost as, as much as they do now. Um, and from my understanding, this was it was particularly pronounced in the southern states. And from my understanding, uh, the education that they were able to get with with that support um, tended to be subpar, to, and it and it, and they were. Funneled into jobs that tended to be lower wage-paying jobs, um, not the type of jobs that would help you generate, you know, significant wealth mm-hmm. over many years. Um, yeah, and Eric, I know you wanted to you wanted to follow up with something there.
2: Yeah, yeah, for the the GI Bill. I mean, we're right now we're talking about historical, but it's it's something that we use. Right now, and the way the GI Bill looks now, I think it's a little bit different from what it was then. But it really is four years up to, I think, up to about 50000 dollars a year, all tuition, all books, um, room and board. If you're living off campus, then it pays um, uh, uh, like a BAH, uh, a basic housing allowance, and. I mean, that's significant. That's if we, my husband had already gone to um, college as a part of the military, as a part of ROTC. Mm. So you still get the GI Bill, regardless of how you came into the military. So we had the option to, to, uh, to disperse it between any dependent children or dependent spouse. So four of us were able to use bits and pieces of his GI Bill put it together to do. I finished my bachelor's with it. We paid for half of one kid's college with it. We paid for another year of another kid's college. That's, that's not, you know, oh, we're going to give you 50 bucks a year. That's tens of thousands of dollars that they just give you as a thank you for your service. And it's, it's just huge. And to think that millions of families got it in the fifties and were able to use it, to start their families, start their lives, Yeah, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah, and, and, and again, the, the economic expansion that it spurred um, from the 40s on uh, for several decades was, was huge in producing a significant amount of wealth in this country that will, will go on to be passed on to generations, but largely kept from, from black people. Right. Um, and just think about how important a college education has become for anyone trying to increase their earnings potential— um, it's only become more important over the years, um, and so that while it did improve, the GI Bill did improve um, Black folks' education access on an absolute basis, on a relative basis, it really served to widen the gap right. uh, of racial wealth disparities in this country.
2: And that no one thought it was a problem. I mean, there weren't there weren't millions of people standing up going, "Wait a minute, you're not you're not dispersing this equally." They're like, mm. "Yeah, it's okay, it makes sense." Yeah.
1: Right, and and the data that I was just mentioning came from a 2002 uh, paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research called "Closing the Gap or Widening the Divide." Um, So that's that's the GI Bill. So we got the three-fifths compromise. We got the GI Bill, and then the last thing I want to talk about, which really kind of follows closely with the GI Bill, is redlining because Mm -hmm. so the GI Bill also provided support uh, for home ownership for mortgages. but redlining, as, as we're going to talk about, uh, really did a lot to block African-Americans from getting access to that financial support. So after the Civil War and before the Industrial Revolution, blacks lived in rural areas. But then as the Industrial Revolution happened, blacks moved more into cities following job opportunities. However, they were kept um, segregated both legally and, of course, by more vigilante methods at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, In the 1930s, as part of the New Deal, the Federal Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, created these loan programs to help make ownership um, accessible to more Americans. But the government created these color-coded maps, green for good neighborhoods and red for bad neighborhoods, to determine who got those loans. And many neighborhoods were designated as red because blacks and other people of color lived in them. And this process was known as red, red as redlining, and it systematically prevented, um, African-Americans and people of color from not only getting home loans, but it also encouraged developers in the green areas to disp- explicitly discriminate against non-whites. And the statistic that really grabbed me from this, and this is, this is all there's tons on the internet about this, but this information that I got is from a Forbes article from, uh, 2018. Um, the policies resulted in 98% of home loans going to white families from 1934 to
0: 1962.
1: Wow. 98%. <laughs> mm. And so not only did the ability to purchase home purchase homes give whites the ability to accrue wealth, it also attracted new businesses to those neighborhoods, which mm-hmm. increased property values, allowed those homeowners to access other wealth-building vehicles like going to college, um, higher quality of life. And as a result, you have uh, you know, wealth building up in those communities as you would expect. And, and that compounds over time. And that goes from, you know, grandparents to parents to grandchildren and you create multiple generations of opportunity and wealth. Um, but largely again, kept away from black folks and kind of the, the punchline here at the end of these, these three things, because so much wealth, building happens as a result of home ownership in this country. Um, in general homes have increased uh, sort of in line with the inflation rate over the last 50 or 70 years which is kind of in the 3% area. 3%s not much in one year but over 50 70 90 years that's a lot of value that's created and if you own that home and you pass it you pass on that wealth over generations over time you're going to create a massive gap between the folks who who own those homes and the folks that don't. In 2016, white families had a median net worth of 171,000 compared to 17,600 for blacks, 20,700 for hispanics. How that does that not make the disparity. entire
2: world angry? How how is that okay? It's not okay. And it's 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 on paper. It's in black and white. It's not the my anecdotal Um, discussion with you about oh boy is my house worth as much as that house or
0: you know oh that's that's a ton of money can't you just hear people (laughs) saying though we worked hard for our money like we right you did maybe but other people had systemic um frameworks going against them right right and for for the talking about the redlining I
2: have a document from the American Geographical Society Library at UW Milwaukee, and it is um, describing that the secure the the security map that was used with the redlining. Mm. Um, so the purpose of the residential security map is to graphically reflect the trend of desirability in neighborhoods from a residential viewpoint. So you have the classifications of um, first, first, second, third, and fourth. The code letters are A, B, C, and D, and that. Is green, blue, yellow, and red, respectively. So green is best. Yellow is definitely declining. Blue is still desirable, and red is hazardous. So there are like actual security map descriptions with that they use to make these decisions on whether they're going to give you a green, yellow, blue, or red um, code on this on this residential area. Is this still
0: happening? Well, where is that? This is how it was done in the... This is
2: how it was done. These are in the 30s and the 40s. Okay. From these, the maps. So the map has um, favorable influence. I'm sorry, the uh, the security description. Favorable influences, detrimental influences. So the one that I'm looking at has the detrimental influences are it's a Negro and slum area. Um the percentage of foreign born families like who who said it's your right to dis- to count how many foreign born families are in a neighborhood okay sorry so <laughs> foreign born families there's 25% mostly russian jews um negroes yes like there's already a line that says negroes you're supposed to say yes or no and there's 65% of it so this this home got a d rating this is the negro and slum area of milwaukee it is old and very ragged besides the colored people a large number number of lower type Jews are moving into the section. Oh this section housed Milwaukee's wealthiest family 70 years ago. And you know, I've got like six of these documents just describing who is in that neighborhood and why that's making it have a lower uh rating. This is this is why these are all like security grade D. These are all red red coded maps because there are oh there's Polish. Boy, this one has a um an infiltration of Polish families. An infiltration like animals? You know, these yeah. are official documents. And I just can't, It's it hurts my brain to think that that these were documents that people signed and had in our historical, that, that they're fine. This is just normal. It's normal.
1: So, uh, I I'm, I'm yeah, doing, we'll, we'll run
2: over to a break and then we'll come back around. Okay. <laughs> We talked a little bit about um, redlining. One of the other ways to um, block home ownership for African Americans were uh, racially restrictive covenants. And um, they were basically a way to say, in the same document that you say, you can't have these kind of buildings on this property. It can only be a certain type of building or here's the easement and this is how far away the trees have to be placed. They also had um, a section that talked about who could live in that neighborhood. So I have one that um, is from a subdivision in Thienesville so this is one of those discussions of it's not somewhere else. It's right here, Thienesville mm-hmm. in Ozaki County. And Article 5 of this um, document, which is an addendum to the deed, and it's called Declaration of Restrictions. So we've got the easements for the trees. We've got how many dwellings you can have on the property. And in Article 5, we have no race other than the Caucasian race shall occupy or use any building or any lot in said subdivision however this covenant shall not prevent the occupancy of domestic servants of a different race employed by an owner or a tenant so this is from uh, 1946 that i pulled up at port washington and it's it again talks about the, the thought for the day it was fi- this made perfect sense it was perfectly fine for this kind of document to be added to your deed and Now we have fair housing in the late 1960s, and this can't be enforced. So does that mean we're all set? We're good now, Mm. because we have that law, and all is well. That was just the past, and we should just let it go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think the answer is no. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) The answer is no. Um, Yeah, I mean, for folks who—and I've had some of these conversations um, with friends who— uh, well, if we talk about racism, they'll, they'll say something along the lines of, um, "You know, why? It, it's been so long now. Like, why? Why can't Black folks kind of pull themselves out of of the poverty that they're in, or the the crime that that you see in in, in urban neighborhoods and and uh, in inner cities? And when you think about the the fact that redlining happened, the thing with the GI Bill happened, that we Sort of quarantine people of color into these lower income um, parts of our cities with less opportunity, and, uh, and and I mean legally required them to be there for many years, and then and then that became illegal, but. Th- they don't have the wealth to just all of a sudden move out of those cities now that they're legally able to. They and
2: that's don't. not hundreds of years ago. It's not that's, hundreds of years. The, the Fair it's Housing a couple Act, generations. 1968. It's yeah. a couple years before I was born. We've got one generation removed. So
1: Why would it not take multiple generations to get out of that situation? Why would you not see high black-on-black crime rates in those neighborhoods? Why would you not see drugs and uh you know children born out of wedlock and all the things that that people tend to talk about when they talk about problems in the black community why would you not see those things if you've drawn circles around them and put them in these depressed areas and kept them there for many years and then all of a sudden we get a top-down order that says you can't do that anymore uh and 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 then we expect them to just catch right back up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like we're 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 gonna start a race um and we expect black people to finish the race right alongside white people, except we're going to have white people start about 100 yards ahead. Mm-hmm. You
2: know what I mean? The, the The generational wealth when we were talking about with the homes. So the VA loans, which again, we still have those now. And that means you don't have to pay the 20%, 25% down payment, which, you know, that's $60,000 in a $300,000 home that you don't have to come out of your pocket with. Mm-hmm. So you bought that house with, you know, the money that the, that the government gave you in the 1950s, you sold that house, you sold four more houses, you moved to the burbs, this, this um the, the wealth that's built in your house, that gives you the opportunity when your adult children are down and out to, borrow money off Mm -hmm. your house and give them that gives you you're in the 10th house that you own now that's larger that gives you space a room for your divorced daughter and her children to come and live with you rent free for a while it gives you things are really tough I'm gonna pull out some of that equity and just use it for a while and put it back Mm -hmm. it affords you so much that just the fact that you don't own a home and you know and no one has three generations before you How do you, how does that just come out of midair and how, I guess it's easy to not see when you, when you have it, you know, you don't see that, how, how that helped you, how those, even those little bitty things helped you and someone else
0: didn't have it. So it didn't help them. Hmm. There's a, a study, a recent study, 2016 out of University of Michigan that, that examines, um, The transmission of wealth across generations and there's a quote by the study's author he said we knew that racial wealth gaps were extreme but now also show that there is a large racial gap in the transmission of wealth across generations today's racial wealth gaps reflect two processes one historical this country's long legacy of actively excluding african americans from asset ownership beginning with slavery and the second contemporary, there are still processes that continue to hinder asset accumulation among non-white families, even those that come from wealthier families. Mm-hmm. So it kind of sums up the things we've been talking about today: that um, both histor- historical um, points, like that you, you know you brought up Josh, and then um, continued um, processes that hinder wealth accumu- accumulation across generations are. Are continuing to um, make that gap wider, and, and you know, not allow people of color to close it.
2: And I think there are still some things that are, you know, if we if we have the conversation about urban, suburban, rural locations of where people are living, the answer right now is not that. African-Americans can never afford to live anywhere there, you know, there, there's still the gaps. There's a wealth gap. So Mm -hmm. the percentage of people that can live in a suburb where the housing prices are triple what they are in the city, you know, that's a problem. But then if you can afford to live somewhere else, is it a place that you want to be? If, if everybody that's there, if they've all come up the same way, And you're still the odd man out. So is it, let me go and join that suburban neighborhood because that's, it's better. It's, I want to be a part of that. But you've already been doing this for generations, you know, and it's, it's, I don't think that people think about the, it's still the odd man out. Even, even if you can't, it's not only about money. It's about the, you know, the welcoming, it's Mm -hmm. about the, um, the the othering that still happens feeling a part of the community. as a, as being a part of the community yeah. and I think that community also involves your the the schools mm-hmm. so if you have more money to pay for your house then you have more taxes that are going to your schools which give your children that are there more resources right. than if you were in a an urban school mm-hmm. there's all those things that come along with it and yeah so I need you to fix so, it you got it all figured out Josh yeah.
1: well I, I think yeah <laughs> this our our little conversation today is it's 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 starting to feel a, little, a bit pessimistic, um, and we're we're identifying some very important um, things that have taken place that have led us to where we are today. But clearly, we've made strides mm-hmm. in in dealing with racism in this country. We got a long way to go, but um, I think if you ask African Americans if you want to do you want to go back to the 1940s or 50s, um, you know nobody does. I, I think we're in a better place than we than we have been. But I, I just hope that um, – my hope is that we can we can have more conversations like this and that there's just a large block of people out there who I think either aren't aware of things like redlining and the GI Bill and that type of situation, or if they are, they, they just haven't contemplated the deep structural impact that they've had on our society. And, it, and if you do, if you really think through it, I think you, you can't get to any other place than having – um more empathy uh, for the reasons why we've seen some of the the, the wealth disparities, the crime, um, we haven't even talked about mass incarceration and how that's come out of um, you know redlining and, and quarantining black folks in these in these low-income areas um, because I don't think there's any easy you know top-down fix to where we are now, but I think, um, having these types of conversations is, can go a long way and creating awareness, awareness can go a long way to changing how some of our institutions work.
2: And we need some action too. I mean, it can't, It can't. you have to know these things to be able to try to correct them, but you've got to actively do something to change it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think that we can do time will heal all wounds and it'll mm-hmm. get better. In three more generations, it should be better. Well, how is it going to be better if you're not doing anything to help change it, yeah. so it's got to be some some action verbs in there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so if you got any ideas, listeners, right, <laughs> call gonna, them in
2: or yeah. come on. We like we like guests on the show. We've been nice to Josh, kind of, sort of. We like
0: guests. Come on in. They
1: yeah. didn't hear the mean things you said to me when we were off. I the know year. that was off.
0: Oh, <laughs> shh! Don't tell. <laughs> All right. So more next time. Thanks for joining the conversation at. Bridge the Divide podcast. Thanks for coming on, Josh. Thank you. See y'all later.